So good morning to everyone. The Kol Nidre prayer, uh, which is the opening prayer or liturgical piece of the Yom Kippur service, is one of his attained popularity as one of the perhaps best known and I would even say most beloved prayers, pieces of liturgy of the entire Jewish calendar, of the entire Jewish prayer book. The sheer number of references to Kol Nidre in general literature, not to mention Jewish literature, the number of melodies that have been composed to Kol Nidre, the fact that the entire opening service of Yom Kippur is called the Kol Nidre service, all attest to the way in which this piece of liturgy has really captured the hearts and, uh, if not the minds, of the Jewish people over the course of generations of centuries. You might be wondering why I'm talking about Kol Nidre, the opening prayer of Yom Kippur, given that we are just a few days away from Rosh Hashanah. But what I want to do this morning is to look at the Kol Nidre, um, and more specifically at the very opening line of Kol Nidre, as a means of examining some themes that pertain not only to Yom Kippur, but I want to suggest to Rosh Hashanah as well. So what I'll do this morning is first I want to talk a little bit about the piece of liturgy as a whole, a little bit about its background, its history, and then I, as I mentioned, want to really hone in on that first line. Kolni Dre, uh, which I brought here in the very first passage that's on your sheets uh, in the bracketed box, is a bit, it's a bit of a misnomer to actually call it a prayer. It's not really a prayer so much as it is a recitation, a ritual. What we do when we recite Kolni Dre is ask for, right, it's really more of a declaration than it is uh, a piece, as I said, uh, a prayer, what we do is we declare that our vows, all vows that we will take in the coming year, and in according to some renditions, all vows that perhaps we have taken in the previous year, are to be null and voided. The words are very famous, but we can perhaps just read them quickly through together, um, and I'll read in the English. By the permission of God and by the permission of this congregation, in the tribunal on high and the tribunal below, we hold it lawful to pray with transgressors. All vows, obligations, oaths, anathemas, pledges of all names that we have vowed, sworn, devoted, bound ourselves to between this Yom Kippur and next Yom Kippur, or again, as I mentioned, according to some versions, between last Yom Kippur and this Yom Kippur. The art scroll Machzor, for example, includes both. We repent of them all, let them all be absolved, forgiven, abandoned, null and void, neither firm nor established. Let our vows be, be not considered vows, our pledges be not considered pledges, and our oaths be not considered oaths. And then we go on to recite a series of verses. Um, by the way, I want to point out that although I noted that the verses are recited three times, I, I, it was, it's a bit of a mistake, um, and I apologize. The first line, as well as the second paragraph that we just read, are also, of course, repeated three times as well. So there's a very ritualistic aspect to this entire rec uh, recitation, in which, again, we are nulling, we are asking for the, for the nullification of all of our vows. The earliest source for 
a Kol Nidre type recitation or ritual is actually mentioned in the Gemara, not in the context of Yom Kippur, but in the context of Rosh Hashanah. So to start off with, that's perhaps the first connection really to, uh, to the holiday that is upcoming. This is not a source that I brought for you, but uh, the Gemara in Masechet Nidarim says, and I'll just read it to you one line briefly, one who wishes that his vows not be in force during the course of the year, or perhaps that his vows from the previous year no longer be in force, Ya'amod bi Rosh Hashanah v'yomar, he should stand up on Rosh Hashanah and declare, Kol neder sh'aniatid lidor yehei batel. Any vow that I am to take in the future, let it be, from the beginning, null and void. U'bilvad sh'yehei zachur b'sha'at haneder. And this works, the Gemara cautions, only if, right, and here it sounds, as with Kol Nidre, as with the original text of Kol Nidre, that the reference is to vows that will be taken, right? A person can preemptively nullify his or her vows with the caveat that when he or she is actually taking the vow somewhere down the line, he or she keep in mind that it was really intended for those to be not in full force. That's what the Gemara says in Masechet Nidarim, again, suggesting that this is something one could do on the eve of, I'm sorry, not on the eve, but actually Ya'amod Birosh Hashanah on Rosh Hashanah itself. Why on Rosh Hashanah? Any ideas? Yes? Well, you're taking action for the future year. So Rosh Hashanah is like the beginning of the year, so it seems like it's going to be a time to keep like the action. Okay. Okay, so in line with all of the thoughts and intentions and uh, perhaps promises that we make to ourselves with the new year in mind, uh, perhaps it's an appropriate time to take this type of preemptive action. Other ideas as to why Rosh Hashanah? Yes? Demerits, right? Okay, and so that would certainly apply if we're talking about vows from the previous year, but perhaps even as the judgments are being written for the coming year, knowing that we all, in the course of its, its human nature, to make statements that we don't end up sticking to, uh, perhaps preemptively uh, suggesting that for the, for the coming year, we already nullify any vows. Yes? Okay, so that's an interesting idea, right? That there is a concept, um, and actually this may be the way in which the Gemara that, we just, that I just read to you, the way in which it does actually get, uh, make its way into contemporary practice is that there is a practice until today on the eve of Rosh Hashanah of doing what is commonly known as Hatarat Nidarim, the nullification of vows. Um, that actually, to nullify a vow that one has taken in the past, one actually is required to convene a beitadin, or at least an ad hoc beitadin, three adult uh, members of the community who can serve as a beitadin, 
um, and who can actually nullify the vow. So your suggestion is that perhaps Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Beit Din Shel Ma'ala, right, the heavenly tribunal, is already sitting, um, and so perhaps it's an appropriate time to recite this nullification of vows as well. So that's another, perhaps, connection to that particular holiday. One thing I do want to point out, interestingly, is that this Gemara that I just read to you, this idea of nullifying future vows, is actually on a technical level distinct from the practice that we continue until today of Hatarat Nidarim. Because the practice of Hatarat Nidarim that we perform, many communities perform until today on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, is actually, as you suggested, a technical legal ritual. Right? If one has, in fact, taken a vow, and by the way, we're talking here about personal vows. We're not talking personal vows or oaths or promises or pledges. We're not talking about oaths that, let's say, a court or someone else would impose upon one. We're only talking about a, uh, a vow, um, a voluntary vow that someone takes upon him or herself. If one does such a thing and does not actually fulfill it, right, that is considered a serious violation. The way one can... Uh, attain forgiveness, which one wants to do before Rosh Hashanah, is to convene this Beitin and to ask the Beitin to forgive or to release that vow. But in that particular case, the precise vow actually does need to be specified. Right? So even though the formula is any vows that we may have taken or all vows or all oaths, right, if one knows of a particular pledge or oath or promise that one has taken and not fulfilled, one is technically, legally, actually required to specify that. And that certainly does require this tribunal, this Beitin, as you suggested. Um, so that is akin, right? That's a practice which is akin or sounds certainly similar to what the Gemara here is talking about, but is somewhat distinct insofar, again, as it's referring definitely to past vows, and as insofar as it is a, a legal action uh, rather than a symbolic one. Yes? So that becomes a matter, that is, I would say, um, one of the primary distinctions. Certainly according to the version of the Kol Nidre prayer and the way that this original Gemara, which refers again to Rosh Hashanah sounds, where it's talking about future vows. Right? As I noted a few moments ago, there are some versions of the Kol Nidre prayer that refer to the vows we may have taken in the previous year, from last Yom Kippur to this Yom Kippur. But many of the Rishonim, many of the medieval scholars rejected that nusach, rejected that wording of the Kol Nidre prayer for precisely the reason that you mentioned, because they did not consider Kol Nidre to be akin to this legal action of Hatarat Nidarim. And so therefore they understood Kol Nidre not to be referring to past vows, but actually to preemptively be nullifying any future vows or oaths or promises. In any event, I'll take the answer. Sure, one more question. Um, and maybe you're headed in this direction, but... Uh, I have a problem with we're annulling future vows as long as we're keep the annulment in mind while we're making them. If you're already keeping the annulment in mind, why are you making them? Okay, and so that is an excellent point. Um, and you are not the first person to have this difficulty with the whole concept of such a ritual. And as a matter of fact, in the very Gemara that I cited, which again refers to Rosh Hashanah, not to Yom Kippur, in that very Gemara, immediately after the Gemara cites this practice, the Gemara follows that with reports of various Amoraim, various Talmudic sages, who 
rejected that practice. Um, as a matter of fact, one rabbi went so far as to censure his fellow, right, to forbid his fellow rabbi to teach about this ritual in public, lest it encourage people to act frivolously or to, uh, to deny the seriousness of taking vows, right? What does it mean to preemptively uh, nullify a vow? Then what is, the, what is the idea of taking a vow in the first place? Not only were some of the sages in the Gemara opposed to this practice, um, but although Kol Nidre, right, this practice started out apparently as a Rosh Hashanah practice and was ultimately transferred to the eve of Yom Kippur and became what we know as Kol Nidre, um, Kol Nidre may have attained much popularity over the centuries, but simultaneously it has a very long history that is mired in controversy. The, in fact, the very first explicit reference to Kol Nidre as such as a ritual for Yom Kippur appears in the literature of the Geonim. The Geonim uh, were the sages who flourished roughly between the year 500 and the year 1000. Um, during the period of the Geonim, there was a lot of controversy between the rabbinic community and the Karaite community. And one of the prominent ways in which the Karaite community ridiculed and criticized the rabbinic community was for this practice of Hatarat Nidarim. Right, because, or, or this practice of reciting Kol Nidre in particular. Because what does it mean to take a vow if you can just retroactively excuse it or preemptively excuse it? Right, then then what does, what, this, this suggests that the community is not very serious about its words to begin with. And so, again, the very first explicit reference that we have to a Kol Nidre prayer appears in the writings of the Geonim who rejected the practice, who suggested that people should not recite Kol Nidre on Yom Kippur because it was going to open them to the ridicule of the Karaite community and because the, the rabbinic community needed to, uh, to shore itself up against the attacks of the Karaite community. So Rav Amram Gaon, for example, who wrote a very famous Sidur, which is one of our first uh, liturgical records, um, mentions Kol Nidre, was clearly aware that there were some communities who were reciting it, but rejected the practice. Um, similarly, we have reports of, from the 13th century of Rav Yechiel of Paris, who was one of the very famous Baaleha Tosafot, who was engaged in a disputation with the Christ famous disputation of Paris uh, with the Christian community, some of whom were actually converts from Judaism, um, who attacked Judaism and its ridiculousness in their eyes for many reasons, among them the practice of Kol Nidre. Um, so it comes up there as well. And taking it uh, to a more contemporary rendition, the reform movement actually abolished the prayer of Kol Nidre in the 19th century for very similar reasons, because it exposed the community to ridicule. Right? This is not serious. Uh, they only reintroduced it, as far as I know, into their prayer book in the 1940s. Um, and so again, the Kol Nidre prayer has a very long history of, of attachment, um, but also a long history of controversy as well. With all that in the background, uh, as I mentioned earlier, what I really want us to focus on today is the opening line to this piece of liturgy, which, if we're not exactly sure as to when the Kol Nidre prayer itself originated, when it became the standard practice or who its author was, we do actually know when this opening line became the common custom. And I'm referring to the line that I bolded, again, in that first text on your sheet in the box. The line which in Hebrew reads, Al-da'at ha-makom 
ועל דעת הקהל, בישיבה של מעלה ובישיבה של מטה, אנו מתירים להתפלל עם העבריינים. Right, by the permission of God and the permission of the congregation in the tribunal on high, the tribunal b- below, we hold it lawful to, play with, to pray with transgressors. Um, that line does not appear in the earliest renditions, as I mentioned, in the Sidurim of the Geonim. It's a line that was appended later on, but it's a very odd line. Right? The, 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 most, important pas- the most important part of this passage is we hold it lawful to pray with transgressors. Anu mitirim, or uh, we permit the prayer with the avaryanim, with the transgressors in the community. This, this seems somewhat bizarre. Right? Of all days, right, the eve of Yom Kippur, of all prayers, the prayer that opens up the holiest day of the year, it seems like the least opportune moment to pray with transgressors, right? or certainly to call attention to the fact that we are praying with transgressors. Okay. <laughs> Please, get us started. I, I was going to say that, um, I mean, this could be the fact that I'm a 21st century American woman, but I don't find the practice ridiculous. Um, I uphold the trade, and I think that that line goes along with it. The idea that not so much that I'm nullifying my vows, so I'm going to act with abandon, knowing full well that they're just, you know, I'm an adult, more like I recognize that, that I'm going to trip up, I recognize that I'm going to commit some sort of transgression, knowingly or unknowingly. And so I'm recognizing that now, and that line is saying, it is lawful to pray with transgressors, myself included. We are all transgressors. This is a recognition of the fact that now, yesterday, and in this coming year, we are going to transgress. Okay, so if I, if I can rephrase what you're suggesting, uh, perhaps this conidre recitation along with that appended first line, is an expression of humility with which to start off this most holy day of the year, the day in which we're going to be engaged in prayer and which we're going to be asking, begging, really, God to look at our merits and not at our faults, but nonetheless opening that day with an expression of humility in recognition of the fact that we are, we have been, we probably will be uh, transgressors. Um, And so that, uh, we're going to return to that thought certainly later on, um, but nonetheless, I do want to suggest, and again, we're not going to, much, much, much could be said additional about the Kol the this process of annulling vows. We're going to put that on the side, although we, we may return to it uh, a bit, um, but we're going to put that on the side, and I want to focus on this aspect of praying with the transgressors. Um, I definitely hear what you're saying, and as, and as I said, um, I, want, I want to hold that thought. But nonetheless, I do want to suggest that this declaration um, with which we open Yom Kippur, if nothing else, flies in the face of a famous Gemara um, from Tractate of Odazarah that we'll, we're about to take a look at regarding Rosh Hashanah prayers, actually. Um, so if you take a look at source number one, the second source on the page, this is, again, the Gemara from Masechet Avodah Zarah, which begins, Amar Rav Yosef, Rav Yosef said, Lo litzle inish tzlota demusafe bitzlat shai kamaita diyoma biyomakama dereshata biyachid. I apologize, much Aramaic, but luckily uh, you have the English translation here. A person should not pray the Musaf prayer 
during the first three hours on the first day of Rosh Hashanah if he or she is praying alone. Dilma kevan Dilma midche. Right? Lest when God stands in judgment, God scrutinizes his or her actions and rejects him or her completely. Right? And this is actually, this statement is in accord with various midrashim that refer to the way in which God's day, kivyachol, is divided. The suggestion is that God spends the first three hours of God's day, every day, uh, but Yom Rosh Hashanah included, God spends the first three hours of God's day engaged in judgment. Therefore, keeping that in mind, the Rav Yosef's suggestion is that a person who is praying biyachid, a person who is praying alone, should not pray the Musaf prayer during those three hours. Right? Because if one prays the Musaf prayer, the Musaf prayer is you know, the highlight of the Rosh Hashanah morning service, God will, again, be engaged in judgment. God will be wearing God's judgment cap and God will scrutinize this person's prayers and the person may be found wanting. So best to save that prayer for a time of day when God is not in judgment mode. Uh, it's a good opportunity to ask everybody to remember to shut off their cell phones. Um, now, that's Rav Yosef's statement to which the Gemara immediately responds, wait a second, if that's the case, right, if God during the first three hours of the day is in judgment mode and perhaps looking too meticulously at people's prayers, then why does Rav Yosef emphasize that an individual should not pray Musaf during those first three hours of Rosh Hashanah? A tzibur, a community who's praying together, should also not pray Musaf during those first three hours. God will judge them as well, and perhaps find them wanting as well. To which the Gemara responds, well, the tzibur nefisha zchute. A tzibur, a community, is different than an individual, because a tzibur is composed of many people who collectively have many merits. And therefore, even when God is in judgment mode, certainly God will find enough merits among that group of people to allow their Musaf prayers to be accepted. Now, that perhaps highlights the distinction for us, or perhaps explains the distinction between an individual praying Musaf during the first three hours and a tzibur, a community praying Musaf. But the Gemara is not finished because the Gemara next asks, wait a minute, if that's the case, if that's the case, then an individual who is praying alone should not only avoid praying the Musaf service during those first three hours of the day, but an individual praying alone should avoid praying Tzafra, the morning service, meaning Shacharit, as well. Right? What difference should it make if this individual is praying Musaf or Shacharit if the idea is that an individual praying alone is too exposed to the scrutiny of God's judgment during those hours, then it's not advisable to pray Shacharit as well. Why did Rav Yosef emphasize that only Musaf was to be avoided during those first three hours. To which the Gemara responds, Kevan Because or since there is a community somewhere praying simultaneously, he or she will not be rejected. So in other words, an individual, the first three hours of the day, right, if we think about uh, the usual order of events on Rosh Hashanah morning, the first three hours of the day are the hours during which most communities, most Jewish communities around the world engage in the Shacharit prayer. 
And so if an individual cannot join the community in prayer and is praying at home or somewhere else, during those three hours of the day, the tefillat shacharit, the, the, the morning prayer, likely it is that he or she is praying simultaneously in time, chronologically, to some community somewhere, and his or her prayers can sort of attach themselves on to the community prayers, even though they're not physically coming from the same locale, and he or she can be counted together with the community, even though, again, he's not physically or she's not physically present. The problem with praying Musaf, for an individual to pray Musaf during those hours, is that most communities don't get up to Musaf during the first three hours of the day. And so that individual's Musaf tefillah will likely stand alone, independently, and will then uh, encounter this, this danger. Yes? So it's better not to be praying? No, no, it's better to wait and pray Musaf if you are praying alone, if you are in a situation in Rosh Hashanah where you cannot join a community. Again, the, the, the focus, the gist of this Gemara is best of all worlds, pray with a community. Right? And this is surely not the only Gemara to emphasize that prayers with a community are the ideal. But if one, as often, uh, as often happens and sometimes happens even on Rosh Hashanah, one cannot join a community, best to at least pray during the hours that you think most communities are praying. So pray shacharit during the time that most communities are praying shacharit, which would be during the three morning hours, and pray musaf when you think that most communities would be praying musaf so that your tefillot can be joined on in some metaphysical fashion to the prayers of some community somewhere, and you can be counted together with that community. Right? That's the suggestion of the Gemara. Not to not pray, but to, uh, to time your prayers carefully. Okay. If God is sitting in judgment, He's no less sitting in judgment than the first three hours if I'm not praying. Okay. okay I, and I understand the subject to judgment. Okay. I hear the question, but what the Gemara is suggesting, I think, is that our prayers are when we particularly, the, the, our moments of prayer are when we particularly open ourselves up or expose ourselves. We're in communication with God. We're essentially asking God to look at us, to look at our deeds, to look at our actions to look at us as individuals. And so, again, yes, God is in judgment even if we do not engage in prayer, presumably, uh, but nonetheless, we should not be asking for God to be looking at us at a moment of, of danger if we cannot uh, shore ourselves up, if we cannot protect ourselves or pad ourselves with the prayers of other community members. Why am I bringing this whole Gemara here? What is its relevance to us? I think that this Gemara sharpens the previous question that I asked which is to say that the people, this Gemara suggests that the people that we pray with or the environment in which we pray plays a critical role in determining how our tefillot will be perceived or received by God. And if we pray with people who have merit, then God will hear our tefillot in that context as tefillot of merit. If we pray with people, if we pray alone, or if we pray with people who have no merit, then God will hear our tefillot in the context of no merit. And so the, the people that we pray with are, again, critical to the way in which our tefillot are received, which returns me to that opening line of Kol Nidre, of the Yom Kippur service, Anu metirim im ha'avaryanim, why at this very moment would we, we want to call attention to the fact that we are praying with people who have no merit. Right? It does not seem like the most, like the smartest or most uh, responsible way to open up the Yom Kippur service. Yes. Um, 
So one thing that we're definitely going to need to ask ourselves are, who are these avaryanim? Right? When we say, anu mitzirim, we uh, grant permission or we deem it lawful to pray with the transgressors, the avaryanim in our midst, who are these avaryanim? And that's a question that we're going to return to uh, a bit later on this morning. We also need to ask ourselves, um, again, not only who these avaryanim are, but why are we granting, right, if we don't, if, if we consider all of ourselves a varianim, or if we don't particularly want to call attention, why are we granting them permission? Is it not obvious that they should have permission to pray along with us? Right, to some extent, all of us are a varianim. All of us are transgressors, as has been suggested a few times. Why do we need to grant this special permission? Why do we need to highlight or emphasize this at the beginning of Yom Kippur? So all of these are very good questions that we'll address. Yes. So d- let me just. Oh, okay, but that's exactly the point. So let me. I think I do, but I want to clarify because I think that's exactly the point of the Gemara. And with this, we'll, we'll, con- we'll I'll just return and quickly conclude that source. The Gemara's point is that most congregations pray Shacharit during the first three hours of the day and pray Musaf, as you said, a bit later in the day. Now, if one is actually physically standing with the community, let's say one goes to a, a minyan that davens vatikin, right, that starts, you know, I don't know what it is today, maybe five in the morning or something like that, then one, that, that community is going to get up to Tfilat Musaf during the first three hours of the day. But that would be okay because the community is praying together. So even though God is sitting in judgment, they can rely on their communal, their collective merits. If an individual is praying, this is the suggestion, if an individual is praying alone, in his or her home, let's say, he should avoid or she should avoid praying Musaf during the first three hours of the day because most communities do not pray Musaf during the first three hours of the day. They pray afterwards. Not that he or she should avoid praying Musaf at all. Pray Musaf, but pray Musaf when you think that most congregations will get up to that so that, again, your tefillot can join those of the community, and that would be after the first three hours of the day. That's the point. Um, Again, it's, it's, I think the Gemara is making a technical suggestion, but more than that, I think the Gemara is making a very important, critical statement about the way in which, again, the people that we pray with, the environment in which we pray, has an effect on the way our individual prayers are received by God. That's, that's the point that I think the Gemara is making, and that's certainly the point that I want to be making uh, by citing this Gemara this morning, again, to highlight that question about this curious first line of Tfilat Kol Nidre. Now, I, w- I want to add one note, one historical note. S- there's a very popular theory that suggests that this opening line was appended, right? We know that it did, was not included in the Geonim, the earliest explicit reference to this, to this passage, to this liturgy. 
there's a popular theory that it was actually appended to the prayer during the period of the Spanish Inquisition and that it was a reference to the uh, crypto-Jews or the Muranos who during the course of the year in their, certainly in their public lives uh, lived as Christians, were not practicing Jews but in secret and hiding and uh, perhaps on Yom Kippur gathered together to reclaim their Jewish identity in secret um, and to pray as Jews. And there's a suggestion, which among other places I actually saw recently on a Chabad website. Uh, so if it's on the Chabad website, then surely other people, uh, it's, it's elsewhere as well. There's a popular suggestion that this Anu Metirim Lihitpalel Im Ha'avaryanim was a reference to those crypto-Jews. Right, that even though these individuals, right, and it's actually a way of explaining why this line was appended specifically to the Kol Nidre prayer, right, even those people, these people, excuse me, who make declarations of their allegiance to a different faith, certainly a varyanim on the public front of things, these people should be allowed on Yom Kippur not only to nullify uh, or to preemptively nullify their vows or their declarations or their, their claims of faith, but they should be allowed to pray with the community as a community. Um, it's a nice theory, and one could, one could appreciate why it was a popular theory at various periods in history. Um, historically speaking, there's no basis for that suggestion. Um, virtually all historians reject that theory because we actually do know where this line originated. And where this line originated is no less significant than, the, I want to suggest, than the line itself. And this line actually originated in medieval Ashkenaz, not in medieval Spain with the crypto-Jews of the Spanish Inquisition, but rather in medieval Ashkenaz in medieval Germany. We first hear explicit reference to this particular line in the writings of the students of Maharam Mirutenberg, Rabbi Meir Ben Baruch of Rutenberg, uh, who was one of the most prominent, most prolific uh, rabbis of the 13th century in Germany. If you take a look at the second source, source number two, which is on the second side of the page, um, one <coughs> example of this I brought for you here from Sefer Tashbet Katan, uh, which was written by someone named, as I wrote it in the Hebrew, uh, Rabbi Shimon ben Sadok, who was not only a student of the Maharam, but actually also his shamash, or attendant. And he wrote this book, Sefer Tashbet Katan, amongst other things, to collect the various traditions that he was witness to or that he learned from his teacher, the Maharam. Uh, many, most of which have to do with prayer services or with the holidays, with day-to-day -day practices that he saw the Maharam adopt. And he writes as follows, and I'll read it in the English. On the eve of Yom Kippur, before he says Kol Nidre, he says, right, and this should sound familiar, this line, B'yeshiva shel ma'ala u'b'yeshiva shel mata al da'at ha'makom ve'al da'at ha'kehal anu metirim l'hitpalel im ha'avaryanim. Right? Is that the same as the line that we have? Well, it's very close, right? There's, the line is flipped, right? There's, the reference is first to the yeshiva shel ma'ala and the yeshiva shel mata and only afterwards uh, to the dat ha'makom and dat kehal. But basically, this is the same line that we have until today in our kol nidre, appended to our kol nidre prayer, right? The idea is that permission is being granted to whom? 
Okay, exactly, right? Anu mitzirim lihitpalel im ha'avaryanim. We grant permission to pray with the transgressors. We grant permission to the community to pray with the transgressors. Now, what's interesting is that if you take a look at the next source, source number three, uh, which is from Sefer Kolbo, Sefer Kolbo is also a collection of minhagim, it's a minhag book. Um, it's a, it was written by someone in Provence, which is southern France, but nonetheless includes many minhagim that originated in Germany. And the author of Sefer Kolbo writes as follows, and Rabbi Meir wrote, on the eve of Yom Kippur, before he says kol nidre, he says, and now I'm quoting in the Hebrew, now, this is actually another slight variation on the formula, and here I actually think it is of perhaps greater significance. What does that mean, Okay, so it, certainly what it does not mean is that we grant permission to pray to the transgressors, right? That would be ridiculous, right? Clearly that is not the intent here. So, anu mitzirim lihitzpalel la'avaryanim basically means we grant permission to the avaryanim, la'avaryanim, to pray, meaning to pray with the community. Right, so in contrast to the rendition of the Tashbates, the kalbo sounds like the permission is being granted not to the community to pray with the transgressors, but rather to the transgressors to join the community. Not to pray for the transgressors, right? And that actually, thank you for pointing that out. The idea, at least explicitly, is not that we are praying for the soul of these transgressors or anything like that. We're not praying that these transgressors should repent. We're granting permission either to the community or the transgressors themselves to join forces, to pray together. Ultimately, the prayers of every individual are up to him or herself. Um, And actually, some commentaries... Uh, some later scholars commenting on these passages or on these renditions of Kol Nidre um, suggest that actually one of the reasons that we say not only but also makom, right, with the permission of God as well as the permission of the community is to remind the transgressors that they're responsible, right? They need the permission of God because they have done things uh, that definitely require God's forgiveness. And even though we are granting them permission to join the community and to pray together on Yom Kippur, that is not an automatic absolving of their transgressions, right? So we're not praying for the transgressors. We're not suddenly absolving them of their transgressions. We're simply granting permission for the transgressors and ostensibly the non-transgressors, although again, that question uh, is one we'll have to return to, to join forces on Yom Kippur. Now, this custom uh, seems, again, which originated apparently as per uh, the evidence in Sefer Tashbets, in Sefer Kolbo, and in various other writings of the students of Rabbi Meir of Ruttenberg, um, this custom of appending that line, that permission to the transgressors, which originated in 13th century Germany, seems to have caught on pretty quickly and developed within a rather short time. Um, and I want to take a look at one other uh, description of how this of how this was carried out, which appears in the fourth source before you, um, which is from the tour. Now, the tour was Rabbi Yaakov ben Harosh, the son of the Rosh, the Rosh Rabbeinu Asher ben Yechiel, was a student of Rabbi Meir of Rutenberg. Right. So, just to follow that chronology, the tour is basically a student of a student. Right, or is, is the son of a student who may have, in fact, heard this directly from the Maharam. But what's perhaps even more significant about the tour and about his father, 
the tour, which, whose name, full name is Rabbi Yaakov ben Harash, Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher, the reason that he's called the tour is because his most famous work was called the tour. Um, sometimes he's called Baal HaTurim. His father, the Rosh, Rabbi Asher ben Yechiel, was a student of Rabbi Meir of Rutenberg. Right, so the tour is a student of a student, or the son of a student of the Maharam. Right, which is, again, all of these uh, references to that line are coming from rather direct sources. But the evidence brought by the tour is significant additionally because both the tour himself and his father, the Rush, who again was a direct student of Rabbi Meir of Rottenberg, were born in Germany, received most of their education in Germany, but actually ran from Germany, escaped from Germany, at the very end of the 13th century uh, in response to events that actually led to the demise of Rabbi Meir himself. Um, and so they moved they, from Germany in the face of persecution to Spain, to northern Spain, and they brought many of the minhagim and many of the teachings of Ashkenaz, of Germany and that entire world of learning, uh, saved it from, uh, from the destruction and moved it over to Spain. And so the tour, when he's writing, is writing for a Spanish audience. Right? He's not writing for an Ashkenazi audience. He's writing for a Spanish audience, but highlighting various customs on occasion, highlighting customs that come from the world of his youth from Ashkenaz. So in the context of this Kol Nidre discussion, he writes as follows. In the evening, they enter the synagogue. Right? And he's talking about the evening of Yom Kippur. And it is customary in Ashkenaz that before he begins to pray, and again, the he who is beginning to pray is a reference to the shliach tzibor, to the chazan, before he begins to pray, they grant permission to all the transgressors so that they may pray with them. Right now, first of all, it's significant that he writes v'nohagin be'ashkenaz, um, because even though, as I mentioned just a moment ago, he preserves many of the customs of Ashkenaz, that particular uh, phraseology is not very common in the tour. Here he's really highlighting the fact that this is an Ashkenazi minhag, right? and I'm highlighting it also. I've mentioned it several times, not coincidentally, because I think that that's significant, um, and we will uh, certainly explore that further. But he mentions that in Ashkenaz, the custom was that before the shliach tzibor began to pray, he granted permission to all the transgressors so that they might pray with them. Now, let's look at that phrase in the Hebrew. It's the second line in the Hebrew. Right, now, thinking about the two previous renditions, one which granted permission to the community to pray with transgressors and one which granted permission to the transgressors to pray with the community, what is the Torah's version of that? How do you read it? I hope my translation is accurate. They grant permission to the transgressors so that they may pray with them. Right, who is permission being granted to here? Okay, that's one reading. Does everyone agree with that? Okay, how would you how would how does that get how would you render that? How would you read that into the words? Okay, so mitirin lekol ha'avaryanim, right? That seems pretty clear that they grant permission to all of the transgressors. Now, the the, cure, the, the, the ambiguous words are the following ones. Kidei lehitpalel imahen 
in order that they may pray with them. Who's the they and who's the them here, right? So it might be that, and I actually think that this is a conglomerate of the two previous renditions, right? It's we grant permission to the transgressors to join, right? For the sake, in order that we, the community, might have the opportunity to pray with them. Right? That's the way that I think that this line is best rendered. Right, so that the community might pray with them. And you would start with a third reading of in order that they might pray with each other. Certainly, right, this conglomeration of the two suggests, to my mind at least, that the Torah really wants us to have the sense, or the Torah himself believed, that this is a two-way street here, right? The, the, those who stand to benefit from this permission that's being granted are not only the avarianim who might otherwise be left out in the cold, and not only the community, but really both, right? Both the, the transgressors certainly benefit from being allowed to pray with the community, but the community also benefits from praying with the transgressors, right? And again, I want to underline that so that we can return to it a bit later. In any event, the tour goes on to say, and even if they, meaning the transgressors, do not ask to be granted permission, Right? They don't care. They've given up hope. They don't really want to pray with the community anyway. And so they never ask the community to grant them this permission. Nonetheless, the community makes this declaration on the eve of Yom Kippur. Why? As, Reb, as Rabbi Shimon Hasida said in this Gemara cited from a Sechet Kretut, any communal fast that does not include the sinners of Israel is not a fast. And brings the following metaphor. For Chelbana, which the English translation is Galbanum. I don't know if that means either, uh, but apparently we're talking about some type of plant or herb. The Chelbana has a bad smell alone by itself, and scripture nonetheless counted it among the incense ingredients. Right, what's, the, what's the metaphor here? Right, meaning the incense, the, the, the incense was a mixture of spices, and the incense included a spice that on its own was very bad smelling. Now the point of the incense was to be sweet smelling, positively, to, to be good smelling. But, but it required the inclusion of that bitter plant or, or bad, foul smelling plant. And so similarly, right, the metaphor uh, that, uh, Rav Shimon ben that Rav Shimon Hasida wants to bring here is that similarly the community, certainly on their own, the transgressors are foul smelling. Right? But the community is not considered a community, just as the incense is not considered incense without including the sinners as well, at least on public fast days. Right? That is Rav Shimon, Shimon Chassidah's teaching here. Um, and so therefore, even if the transgressors don't ask to be included, it is, again, to whose benefit? It's necessary for the community. It's to the community's benefit to include them, to grant them this permission so that they might join. Um, and they say in the following words, and this is how they grant the permission in the tribunal on high and the tribunal below, the words that we've seen several times, with the permission of God and with the permission of the community, we hold it lawful to pray with the transgressors. And then the Torah adds, and the prayer leader takes out a Torah scroll and clasps it to his chest and says, kol nidre, be'athare, etc., etc., the whole formula that we've seen. Mm-hmm. 
should apply not only during Kol Nidra, but should apply, obviously, for these other fast days, and may apply for any time you pray. Why should we ask our permission when we're in the minion with Musaf on Shabbat? Okay, so that's an excellent question. I mean, the, the Gemara that's being cited here, again, the, the tour is talking explicitly about the Kol Nidre Yom Kippur context. But the Gemara that's being cited in the name of Rabbi Shimon Chasida is, as the Gemara itself makes clear, talking about all public fast days. Um, you're suggesting that perhaps we can take it even beyond the fast days to include any communal or public gathering. Right? Why, why might Rabbi Shimon Chasida have focused on the fast days Right, but why specifically is he talking about a ta'anit? Right, why not, as you're suggesting, expand it to any communal gathering, right? No Shabbat is a Shabbat without including the sinners of Israel. Right? Right, we can imagine a statement like that. Why do you think Rabbi Shimon Chassidah might have focused on the fast days as requiring the presence of sinners? What is, what is the advantage of having those sinners around, particularly on public fast days? So that we can see them Okay, so maybe, maybe the advantage of having those sinners around and the reason that a public fast day requires the presence of those sinners is to remind us of our own sins, right? Why are we here on this fast day? What's the purpose of this fast day altogether? It's to atone for our sins, right? But a lot of times it's hard for us to hold a mirror up to our own faces and to see our own sinfulness. It's easier to recognize it in other people. And so the fast day in particular, which is when we focus on the atonement for sins, right? The minor fast days as well as Yom Kippur, but Yom Kippur, actually it's to our advantage as a community to have those sinners around so that we can remember what we're here for. We can remember to take a look at ourselves and, uh, and, and be cognizant, aware of our own sins, yes. Okay, okay, so maybe having these sinners around makes the, the stakes higher, right? The stakes of the repentant, right? These are people who did presumably really serious things. They're being called sinners. So the stakes are higher, and maybe the repentance will ultimately be more powerful. Is that what you were suggesting? Okay, sorry if I, if I uh, mis, mis, misunderstood your words. Yes? Okay, so if I understand correctly, you're suggesting that perhaps, and, and again, we still need to return to the question that I keep promising we'll return to, this question of who are the sinners that we're referring to, right? Your suggestion is perhaps these avaryanim that, that are being referred to are in fact, okay, again, we said we're not, let's, let's leave aside those crypto-Jews from Spain. That was, that was a, not it was a nice idea, but leaving those aside, but in Ashkenaz also, right? In Ashkenaz, there were certainly people who converted. Maybe that's who we're referring yeah. to, people who actually committed quite serious crimes as far as Judaism is concerned because of leaving the yeah, faith. I feel like there were, you always have this paradigm where there are people that were sinning and people that were sinning less, but because they're kind of labeled as a sinner, it makes me wonder if they label themselves as like outside of the community down in some respect. Okay.
Okay, so that's an excellent idea, and I want to, I wanna, again, I'm not, I don't want to ignore that, or, 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 yeah. or I, I just want to put it on the side for one moment, yeah. and I want, and we're going to the very next question that we're going to ask is, who is an Avaryan? But first, I just want to return to, again, this question of why, right, back to Rabbi Shimon Chassidah's teaching and the way in which the Torah is using it in the Kol Nidre context, why is it so important? Why is a fast day not a fast day, and Yom Kippur not Yom Kippur without the inclusion of the sinners? Yes? Okay, so certainly, again, the, the reason, as you suggest, that we read that Torah reading on the, the minor fast days, um, on public fast days, is because fast days are days for engaging with uh, sin and forgiveness. And so, again, going back to what we said beforehand, I think that adds to the suggestion that part of the reason we as a community need these sinners to be here is because we need to be reminded of what this fast day is all about. And if we can't hold up a mirror to our own, to ourselves, by ourselves, then perhaps these sinners will allow us, will help us to do so, and remind us what we're supposed to be doing. Right? So that's one suggestion. Yes? It's, I'm sorry? Okay, so maybe so I'm gonna I'm gonna rephrase your suggestion. You can correct me if I'm reading it if I'm listening to you uh, inappropriately. Your suggestion is perhaps this is an opportunity for the community. The reason we the community wants these sinners around is because it's an opportunity for the community to engage in some cure work, right? It's an opportunity for the community to reach out um, to do good deeds, which again is certainly uh, an appropriate thing to do, be doing on a day that's about engaging in repentance. Yes. So I know you said that we're going to talk soon about who exactly the Bayernians are, but is there a reason you couldn't read it that that's all of us? And if um, if our if these fast days are only during before we're not including sinners, it wouldn't include any of us. And it would be easy enough, you know, on any of these times to say, you know what, like I like look, you know, look at me and look at look at what I've done over this past year, like what's these. Okay, so maybe it's a veiled reference to ourselves, right? In other words, we're, it's, we're uncomfortable about saying we have to grant permission to ourselves explicitly, but essentially that's what we're doing because we're all a very name. Um, and so that's this idea of including uh, on the fast day. I want to make one more suggestion, which is that perhaps although minor fast days uh, too, but certainly Yom Kippur is a day in which we oftentimes are very inwardly focused. Right, it's about, you know, sort of, again, uh, not engaging in eating, not engaging in other physical activities, so that we can focus inwards, that we can focus on uh, the work of the soul. Perhaps this anu mitzirim lihitpalel imavaryanim, and the reason that we want the sinners around, is to remind ourselves that we also have a communal responsibility. Right, and this is perhaps <coughs> just a, a, a further rendition of some suggestions that have been made. We want, we have communal responsibility for other people. We don't want to be only inwardly focused. We also want to be aware of, be cognizant of, and take responsibility for other people in our community, including those those sinners. And that's perhaps necessary, critical to the meaning of a public fast day, and particularly Yom Kippur. Um, and so, therefore, it is necessary to include them and to publicly declare that we'll include them at the beginning of Yom Kippur. I want to take two more suggestions. Yes? Um, well, we 
saying that we're all transgressors. Clearly by this prayer, there is a group that are identified as transgressors, because otherwise they, wouldn't they just say the whole thing is, but the transgressors self-identified, and did you know? Okay, so that's an excellent question, and that's a great segue to, as I said, what we're now going to finally focus on, which is who are these transgressors, right, and why are they labeled as such, and who labeled them that way? So hold that thought. We'll come right back to it. Yes? Um, it seems to me that the transgressors on a fast day or a day of atonement have the most to uh, atone for the most motivation to pray seriously and that there might be a hope that as their prayers of Teshuva ascend, Okay, I, I think that's a great idea. I think it's very similar to what you suggested beforehand, which is that the greater the sin, the more powerful the atonement. And perhaps we as a community actually want these sinners around so that collectively our atonement can have that much greater force. Our tefillot, right? Our request for atonement and ultimately, hopefully, uh, the atonement itself will have that much greater force. So all of these are good reasons. Um, Before we move on to discuss who these Avaryanim actually are, I just want to take a very quick look at the last line in the tour. Um, the last line in the tour, and the prayer leader, right, after making this declaration, the prayer leader takes out a Torah scroll and clasps it to his chest and says, Kol Nidre, etc. Now, other sources that I did not bring for you right here embellish this, this description that is provided by the tour. Um, and suggest that it is not only the Chazan who takes a Torah scroll and clasps it to his chest, but rather, as uh, is the practice probably in many of our communities, the Chazan is joined by minimally two other people who also remove Torah scrolls from the Ark and clasp them to, to their chest and stand with the Chazan as the Chazan uh, makes this declaration and recites Kol Nidre. Some of the sources suggest that there are these three, the two individuals who join the Chazan, three people uh, to metaphorically represent as in uh, Sefer Shmot, Moshe, Aharon, and Hur, right? Aharon and Hur were the ones who, during the Battle of Amalek, uh, supported Moshe's hands as he raised them to the heaven, heavens, uh, which was symbolically necessary for the people to attain God's favor and win the war. And so this is a similar uh, type of uh, ritual. Um, others suggest, and this goes back to what we were discussing beforehand, those who believe that Kol Nidre does have some technical legal aspect that is akin to Hatarat Nizarim suggests that these three people who are clasping the Torah scrolls are part of this tribunal, right? Part of this baiting of three that would be necessary in order to formally release the Avaryanim from uh, this ban that has kept them out of the community. And we'll, the idea of the ban and the need to release it is something that we're going to be returning to in just a few moments. Okay, so finally, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to ignore you. Uh, can I please, please. Uh, so um, something we did earlier in the week, um, looking at uh, Yoma chapter 8 and 9, there's also this idea of some sins you have to wait until Yom Kippur in order to be atoned. So, but some of them are unintentional sins. So you have people in the community who've done things unintentionally. So they may not be active sinners, but at the same time they still have to wait. So you're supporting all of those people yourself. Um, okay, so again, so I think that, that speaks directly to, the, to this question of who are these Avaryanim? Right? Who are the Avaryanim that we're referring to? And you want to suggest that perhaps we're referring to unintentional sinners. Now, 
just going to throw out the question just like that. Who is an Avaryan? Right, when you think of an Avaryan, we've been saying, who is an Avaryan? Who, what image comes to mind? Who is this person? That's, that's an excellent question, right? Meaning, are they designating themselves as a varianim? Is someone else, is the community branding them a varianim? But who are these people? I mean, do we have in mind, are we talking about serious hardened criminals? Are we talking about murderers and rapists and, and thieves? Is that who we're talking about? Yes? Can I just ask, in, I, I can't think of other contexts in which we use the word a Okay, so, so that's... You felt like with that's exactly the direction that I'm going, right? The question that we need to ask ourselves is, who are we talking about serious criminals? Are we talking about, first of all, repeat offenders? Or are we talking about one-time offenders? Right? If we're talking about one-time offenders, then that which we have said several times throughout certainly is true. All of us are avaryanim. Or again, are we talking about someone who repeatedly performs this forbidden action? And that is necessary in order to become labeled an Avaryan. Yes. Uh, yes, you. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, I was going to say that I think that a transgressor is a public transgressor, that everybody knows, let's say he went into a, a restaurant that wasn't kosher and they Okay, so you, you're suggesting that in order to be called an Avaryan, not only do you need to be an offender, but you need to be a public uh, offender. You need to be someone who, right, and that's how you would get labeled in a varian. We're not talking about people who do things, you know, in the privacy and the secrecy of their own. Uh, this is something that, that, again, is a public act that the person embraces, and that's why they get labeled in a varian. Now, as you pointed out, it's an unusual term in a certain sense, this term avaryan. The Torah never uses the word avaryan. Right? The Torah has other terms for referring to sinners. Sometimes the Torah talks about a chait, or, or sin itself, right? Either a chait, a pesha, an avon. But the Torah never talks about an avira or an avaryan. We first find that term used in Talmudic literature uh, by the rabbis, by Chazal. So the first place, as you suggested, to get a sense of what we mean, of who we mean when we talk about an avaryan, is to take a look at some of the passages from the Gemara where people are referred to as avaryanim. So I want to take a look quickly um, at source number five, um, it's a Gemara from Masechet Shabbat, um, which is it's actually longer in the Hebrew than the English because I only translated part of it. Um, I just want to read it through quickly because the important part is at the end. The Gemara in Shabbat is talking about the use of a bathhouse on Shabbat. Okay, and says as follows. Our rabbis taught, it's a Brita Tanur Rabbanan. If the holes of a bathhouse are plugged on the eve of Shabbat, one may bathe therein immediately after the conclusion of Shabbat. Right? So in other words, if the water is heated up before Shabbat, and then the holes are plugged to retain the hot water, then immediately after Shabbat, you can use that hot water. Right? If it hasn't been heated on Shabbat, it was heated before Shabbat, but you don't need to wait the amount of time that you could have heated it, or you don't need to reheat it after Shabbat. You can use it immediately after Shabbat. If on the eve of a festival, one may enter on the morrow, sweat, go out, have a south bath in the outer chamber, right? In other words, if the water has been heated prior to Yom Tov, then on Yom Tov, on the festival itself, that preheated water can actually be used. Um, Rav Yehuda said it once happened at the baths of B'nai Brak that the holes were plugged on the eve of a festival. 
On the morrow, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Akiva entered, sweated therein, went out, had a spouse bath in the outer chamber, but the warm water was covered over with boards. When the matter came before the sages, they said, even if the warm water is not covered with boards. But when the transgressors grew in number, they began forbidding it. Right? And without getting into all the technicalities of exactly what happened, right, the point is that Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah and Rabbi Akiva did not precisely follow the ruling of the sages. The sages were lenient. But when the transgressors grew in number, they began forbidding it. Now we're talking about a practice which the sages permitted, but they permitted under a very specific series of conditions. And the part that I did not translate for you is that the Gemara goes on to detail and to describe how as people began pushing the envelope in terms of their practice of using the bathhouse on Shabbat and uh, after Shabbat and on festivals, right, and they began just sort of stretching the limits a little bit more and more and more and more in terms of what the sages had permitted, ultimately the sages' response was to restrict this practice more and more and more and more, right, as, as, uh, as because of these ovreyavera, because of these avaryanim. The Gemara goes on and on, and at the end of this whole passage, I just want to take a look at the last three lines in the English, Rava said, he who violates, and he's drawing a general principle here from this whole story, he who violates even a rabbinical enactment, in Hebrew it's shari lemikre le avaryana, translated as, by Sansino at least, may be stigmatized a transgressor. According to whom? According to this Tana. Right, so Rava is using, just to clarify what, what the Gemara is talking about here, Rava is using this whole story in order to claim, right, because the, the Brita had said previously, when the transgressors grew in number, the rabbis began forbidding these practices. Right, so the Brita, the Tana, the, the, the sage, the anonymous sage of this Brita, is calling the people who began violating rabbinic decrees transgressors from which Rava derives the principle that one who violates even a rabbinic enactment, meaning not, this is not, we're not talking about a Torah decree here. We're not in the realm of Isurei or Raita at all. We're in the realm of rabbinic enactments. And nonetheless, one who violates a rabbinic enactment may be called a transgressor or may be stigmatized as a transgressor. Now, Rava's point is that it's permitted to disparage some, such a person, right? someone who violates rabbinic decrees, by calling them explicitly a, transitor, a, a, a transgressor. Why is it permitted to disparage them? Right? Generally, we're not in favor of calling people names. Right? What's, why, why does Rava permit calling such a person, labeling such a person a transgressor? Yes? Um, so that it would be known that Exactly. Presumably, the idea is that by labeling such a person a transgressor, we can more effectively prevent other people from joining his ranks. Right? We can prevent other people from emulating that person. Right? And that's, again, the, part, the point of the Gemara that we're not going to uh, look into in depth right now is that people were doing just the opposite. Right? People were pushing the envelope and they were beginning to transgress more and more and more. And so Rava concludes that we can label them transgressors so that we can prevent people or discourage people from emulating such behaviors. So according to this Gemara, for our purposes, why is this relevant? Who is a transgressor, according to this Gemara? And again, the, word, the terminology in Hebrew is avaryana, in avaryan, which is the term that we've been using all along. Who is an avaryan? One who violates a rabbinic decree. Right? So we're not, according to this Gemara, an avaryan is not necessarily someone who is a rapist and a murderer and a thief and violates the most severe of biblical sins. 
In Avaryan is someone who violates a rabbinic decree. Even someone who violates a rabbinic decree. That's the first Gemara I want to take a look at. Now we said we take a look at a few examples, so I want to move very quickly uh, to source number six, which is also a Gemara here from a Sechat Nida. The Gemara says as follows. Amar Rav, Rav stated, which is translated here as a man who willfully causes an erection, should be placed under the ban, right? Yebenidui should be excommunicated. But why did he not say this is forbidden? Because the man merely incites the evil inclination against himself. Rabbi Ami, however, stated he is called a transgressor in the Hebrew nikra avaryan, because such is the art of the evil inclination. Today it incites man to do one wrong thing, and tomorrow it incites him to worship idols, and he proceeds to worship them. Right, so the... The, the, the gateway drug No Okay, well, so just to understand, right, the, the Gemara here is talking about someone who masturbated, who's not actually, we're, we're not talking about adultery, we're not talking about rape, right, we're not talking about the most severe sexual sins, right, as a matter of fact, uh, Rav seems to feel that this is Right? This is not, he, he didn't say this is forbidden because it's not explicitly, right? but this is the, he incites his evil inclination against himself, but Rav Ami seems to feel that this act is significant enough, right? this act of inciting his evil inclination against himself, to label this person an Avaryan. So what we, I think, derive, what we can get from this, from this Gemara, in addition to what we saw beforehand, is that a Navaryan is not only someone who violates, or not always someone who violates an explicit rabbinic decree, a Navaryan is also someone who engages in inappropriate sexual behavior, in behavior, or if we want to extrapolate a bit more universally, a bit beyond that, behavior that will lead him or her astray. Right, so... I think the effect of this Gemara is to actually bring the label of Aryan even down, even one notch further. Right? We're not talking about, again, the rapists and the murderers and the thieves. We're not talking about people who violate biblical commandments. Perhaps we're talking about people who violate rabbinic commandments. Perhaps we're talking about people who engage in behavior that leads them to sin. Yes? I have a little bit of problem with that. I think that um, I'm wondering if he was saying it because it was a time of, uh, of uh, you know, wait, did he live at the time when they were already playing, where there was already, you know, like, uh, we weren't going to, we were, like, in Sparag, there were Jews who were practicing being. Here we're talking, this is, this is the Gemara, okay? This is the Gemara, this is. Uh, Rabbi Ami in the Gemara, certainly there's a lot more to say. We could take this Gemara and we could unpack it in so many different ways, each one of these Gemara. We're not going to do that now. That's not our point. Right? Our point now is simply to get a sense of what Chazal might have meant when they referred, when they used the term Avaryan. So we've seen two examples. I want to take a look at the next one and then I'll take the questions. The next one, and again, there are many more, but these are just three uh, for illustrative purposes. Source number seven, which is from the Psikta Zutra, um, also called Midrash Lekach Tov. It's actually a medieval Midrash, so it's uh, from a slightly later period. The Midrash says as follows, and it was taught, one who does not vow at all is better than one who vows and does not fulfill, and is even better than one who vows and fulfills. In other words, don't vow, right? Even if you vow something and you manage to fulfill your vow, it's not a great idea, right? Don't vow altogether. And surely one who vows and does not fulfill is called a transgressor, 
right? Mikra Avaryan, for the Holy One Blessed, for the Holy Blessed One warned Israel not to become familiar with vows and oaths, oaths lest they come to transgress, right? So the gist of this midrash is certainly to discourage vows and oaths. One who does not fulfill a vow is called a transgressor. Now, again, thinking about all the things we said regarding Kol Nidre, one might think that that's pretty serious, and certainly not fulfilling a vow can be a very serious matter. But many commentators and poskim suggest that here what we're talking about is even someone who, for example, takes upon herself the commitment, let's say, to learn a masechet of Mishnah in memory of someone who has died, right? Which is something that people commit to, and I don't know how seriously people take that commitment. But many poskim suggest that that, in fact, is included in this category of one who makes a commitment and fails to follow it, fails to fulfill it, excuse me. Right? That is also that person, according to this midrash, is called an avaryan. Right? So we're now, again, if we take all these different renditions of the word avaryan, we get the sense that we're talking about people not necessarily, not, not by any means necessarily, hardened criminals or serious, uh, serious violators. We're talking about much more minor scale violations. All of this is the, u- the way in which avaryan was used in the context of Chazal, in the context of Midrashim. But what's most significant for us right now is to understand what avaryan meant in the context of the medieval Ashkenazi scholars who used it lehatir lehitpalel im ha'avaryanim in the Kol Nidre context. And so here I want to move uh, to source number eight which is taken from Machzor Vitri. Machzor Vitri uh, was a collection of tfilot, uh, a collection of holiday practices that were collected by Rabbi Simcha of Vitri, a student of Rashi. So Machzor Vitri is considered a fairly, uh, fairly important source for practices that originated in Rashi's Beit Midrash. Rashi, 11th century Ashkenaz, so this is somewhat prior to the Maharami Rittenberg, but nonetheless the medieval Ashkenazi context. And Mahzor Vitri writes as follows. A transgressor who has violated communal ordinances, if the community has not excommunicated him, he is counted for a quorum of ten and obligated in all mitzvot. Right, we're talking about a person who has violated community ordinances. Right, and that is what we call right, avaryan she'avar al-zirat tzibor. Who is an avaryan for Machzor Vitri, for the student of Rashi? It's someone who violated communal ordinances. Now, what are communal ordinances? Yes? Okay, so I want to... Uh, so you're right very much so that it's community custom, but it's with the force of law. It's community custom that the community itself has entered onto the law books, so to speak, of that community, but it's very much community-driven. Right? We're not talking about piskei halacha that were issued by rabbis or scholars. We're talking about communities, oftentimes small communities, that was what was more commonplace in Ashkenaz, who put into force all sorts of rules and regulations about the running of the community. Right? We're not talking about halacha per se. We're talking about the way in which the community collected communal taxes. We're talking about the way in which the community regulated trade and business so as to eliminate unfair competition. We're talking about the way in which the community set up uh, the functioning of their communal 
governing organizations, the way in which the community decided they wanted to run their tefillot and other uh, community gatherings. We're talking very much, again, not at the level of halakha proper, but the level of community rules and regulations. That, and again, these rules and regulations, and this is an interesting side topic that uh, perhaps we can discuss at some other points, is to how, what was the halachic force behind these takanot hakehal. But in any event, that's what we're talking about. And Mahsar Vitri suggests that the avaryan is someone who violated, not rape and murder, not even rabbinic enactments, nor sexual misdeeds that might lead to sin, but we're talking about someone who violated the community ordinances, who did not conform to the way the community wanted to collect taxes or to appoint its leaders or to organize the tefillot, etc., etc. Yes? I don't understand why you keep saying it doesn't include murder, rape, and things which we consider really serious transgressions. I think community would have, in its ordinance, say we don't commit murder. Go to a, I, don't, I know that you're talking about in a kind of, I'm not sure you mean making it a village, a community which is concerned only with uh, minor behavior, but any community ordinance has to include all these major crimes. Okay, well, the community ordinance, the Takanakal generally didn't include those crimes because that was already pre agreed upon. Right? The community ordinances were only the jurisdiction or the, or the, the, the subjects, the topics that they focused on were specifically those areas of community governance that were not covered by the Torah or by rabbinic ordinance. Right? So certainly, yes, obviously every community agreed that murder and rape and etc. were crimes that could not be committed by its members. But those wouldn't have been included in the community ordinances because they were already covered again, by the Torah, by, by halakha, said mainstream halakha, etc. Now, I don't want to suggest that someone who commits those actions is not considered an avaryan, and I'm sorry if it came out wrong uh, in that regard. What I want to suggest is that an avaryan can refer to, and often did in the medieval Ashkenazi context, refer to people who committed much more seemingly minor infractions. And so when, and now I want to take this one, I, I, I see that there are a bunch of questions, but our time is short, so I want to focus the, the discussion, and then I'll be happy to take questions at the end. I want to take this, um, now again, the point that the Machzor was making, and then I want to take it immediately into the Kol Nidre context, is that a transgressor who violates community ordinances, if the community didn't excommunicate him, then he continues to be counted for a minyan, he continues to perform mitzvot that require communal participation, let's say, kriyat megillah, etc. And we're going to just skip a few lines. But if they excommunicated him because he separated from the community in his actions, right, did not conform to their regulations concerning the taxes or whatnot, if they join into them, where is the curse? And what did they achieve with their ordinance? And therefore, he is not worthy of being included at all, for they, are, for they already separated him from their ranks. Now, the point that the Mahzor Vitri is making is that if a person, and oftentimes when a person violated community ordinances, the teeth or the force, the way that the community had to enforce these regulations was to use the punishment of excommunication. And excommunication was a very serious punishment, particularly if we're thinking about small communities where if you were not counted as a member of the community, you were really out there on your own. The community had the power to excommunicate an individual to the extent that that individual could not be counted for a minyan, could not be called up to read the Torah, could not be included in public uh, recitations or in public performances of mitzvot. 
a person who has been excommunicated, Machsorvitri suggests, should not be included. Now I want to take a look at source number nine, bring that directly to the Kol Nidre context. Source number nine is the Mordechai. The Mordechai, Rabbi Mordechai Bar Hillel, was also a student of Maharam Rutenberg. Right, so he is also a direct uh, reference to the origin of the Kol Nidre, that Kol Nidre custom of preempting with the line about the Avaryanim. And he says as follows, V'nichnasim l'beit ha-knesset, again he's referring to Erev Yom Kippur, Umitirim cherem lihitpalel in kol ish asher avar al gzirat hakehal. And then he goes on to say what we've already heard others say. Afilo enom avakeshi atirulo de amari b'shimon chasida kol taanit shein bo miposhe Yisrael eno taanit etc. etc. Right? He says on erev Yom Kippur they enter the synagogue and they release the ban in order to pray with every person who violated a communal ordinance. So according to the Mordechai here. When they announced in Shul and Erev Yom Kippur, Anu, right, Aldat uh, Hamakom who were those Avaryanim they were referring to? Those were all the people who got excommunicated in the course of the year. Why? Because they didn't pay their taxes, because they didn't agree with the rules of the community for how to appoint leaders, because they didn't uh, regulate their business the way the community decided they should regulate their business, and as a result of such, they got excommunicated. That's who, it seems, originally, the communities of Ashkenaz meant to include in their prayers on Yom Kippur when they made this announcement, Anu Mitirim Lihit Palel Im Ha'avaryanim. They weren't referring to the hardened criminals. They weren't referring even to the more minor violators of rabbinic law. They were referring specifically to those people who were under ban, who were under excommunication. And that's what it means, Mitirin. Right, Mitirin is not only we grant permission, it's a technical term that means we break the bonds of the excommunication. We release that ban which kept them outside and for, for Yom Kippur, we are going to welcome them back in. We are going to allow them to join the community uh, despite the fact that over the course of the year we saw fit to punish them for not conforming to the norms and standards for the sake of Yom Kippur, on Yom Kippur, we are going to re-include them in the community and we are going to ask them to, to join us again. Now, in the few minutes that remain, um, what, I want us to what I want to ask is, first of all, what was the significance of that line to the people of medieval Ashkenaz, to these communities that enacted all these types of community organ ordinances that regulated their communities in this type of way. And what can we take from that, right, from the original context of this line, which we've retained in our own spilot, what can we take from that original context to make meaning for the recitation, for our recitation of this line in our own communities today? Um, now, the nature, as I've been suggesting, of medieval Ashkenazi society was such that, I don't want to suggest that medieval Ashkenazi society was a con an entirely conformist society. Right? There is a lot of uh, dispute among historians as to the image of Ashkenazi Jewry. Right? And there is, there, the Ashkenazi Jews themselves at a certain point seem to have promoted a self-image that presented their communities as being entirely and completely, not only law-abiding, uh, but mitzvah-abiding as being absolutely conformist societies. Now, in point of fact, 
it's very clear historically that there were criminals in medieval Ashkenaz, there were people who violated community ordinances, um, but nonetheless, even though medieval Ashkenaz was not, a, was not truly an entirely conformist community, that was the ideal to which they aspired. Now, in that context, in that type of society which aspires to a very, very conformist uh, type of community, what is the force of beginning Yom Kippur, of beginning the high holiday season altogether with this statement, with this inclusion of the Avaryanim? Now, certainly it could have been for the sake of the Avaryanim, as we've suggested several times throughout. <coughs> it's that they're not left out in the cold, that they don't, they are not under excommunication and have no place to pray on the Yamim Noraim. Um, but I want to suggest that in this particular context, the statement was first and foremost for the sake of the community itself. And I want to wrap this together uh, by taking a look. You mentioned the Mishnayot at the end of Masechet Yoma uh, a bit earlier, and I gather that you've studied them in the past days. I want to take a look at the very last source that I brought for you, source number 10, which is, in fact, um, the very last Mishnah of Masechet Yoma. This is only a section of it, uh, but the Mishnah says, one who says, I will sin and repent, I will sin and repent, an opportunity to repent is not given to him. In other words, one who sins with the intention of, oh, you know, I'll take care of it later. Similarly, one who says, I will sin and Yom Kippur will atone, right? It's okay, I can do what I want during the whole year and we'll get to Yom Kippur and I'll be taken care of. No, Yom Kippur in that case does not atone. The Mishnah goes on to say, transgressions between a person and God, Yom Kippur atones, but very famously, Yom Kippur does not uh, sorry, transgressions between a person and his fellow, Yom Kippur does not atone until he appeases his fellow. Right? Averot sheben adam lechavero en Yom Kippurim mechaper ad sheyiratze chavero. Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah has a drasha from this from a verse, right? but that's the very famous uh, statement that Yom Kippur is a day in which we work on the atonement of misdeeds that are between us and God. It's a day for us to look inward, for us to work on our relationship with God, but it doesn't help us with regards to all those misdeeds that we might have done directed at our fellow human beings. Those, right, the common custom of asking friends and relatives and maybe particularly not friends uh, for forgiveness for, for, for mechila in the days leading up to Rosh Hashanah and to Yom Kippur is based on this Mishnah, the need to appease those who one might have wronged as a means of preparing oneself, as a means of getting oneself into the mode, which is the only mode with which one can approach Yom Kippur and hope to achieve atonement. Now going back to medieval Ashkenazi society, in a society in which conformism was, seems to have been such an ideal, in a society that excommunicated people who did not strictly conform to the community norms and regulations, I want to suggest that this statement, Anu Mitzirim Lihitpalalim Ha'avaryanim, for the sake of the Avaryanim, yeah, of course. But first and foremost, this was perhaps the most appropriate way for such a community to begin, right? And keep in mind, Kol Nidre was always recited, is always recited, before the official start of Yom Kippur. This was the very last opportunity for the members of the community to make that mechila, to ask their fellows for that type of atonement. And so turning to the Avaryanim, who it seems in context were specifically those people who violated, who did not conform to the norms of that particular community, asking them to please join, even if they did not ask themselves for such forgiveness to be granted to them, asking them to please join the community on this day was perhaps the most necessary, the most critical way for the community to demonstrate 
that they really were prepared, were ready to enter into Yom Kippur and to work on their, uh, on their Averot ben Adam lemakom. What, is, what does this do for us? Right? How does this have meaning in our own context? We don't have the same type of community controls uh, that the communities of Ashkenaz did. We don't use Takanot Kihal in the same way that medieval Ashkenaz does, did. But certainly in each of our own communities, I think there are plenty of forms of social control, plenty of ways in which consciously and unconsciously we as individuals and certainly we as a community send pretty clear signals to those in our midst what they must do in order to conform, who's in, who's out, what kind of behavior or what kind of uh, way of being is acceptable, is allowed to join our ranks, and what is not acceptable and what is essentially, right, if not formally, excommunicated, right, what is not uh, something that we allow to be part of our community, part of our, uh, our society. And I want to suggest that perhaps this uh, again, keeping in mind uh, its original context, that this way of opening Yom Kippur, but really uh, our entire high holiday season, with this anu mitzirim lihitpalalim ha'avaryanim, with this statement of acceptance, of willingness to welcome back into our ranks even those who don't conform, even those who don't strictly follow what we consider to be acceptable and normative, is perhaps the best way to indicate to ourselves as well as to those individuals, that we really have gone through this process, the, the pre-chuva process that is necessary in order for us to approach God on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur. Um, and so with that, and I'm more than happy to take additional questions, I just wanted to really wish everyone a Shana Tova, a Ketiva V'chatima Tova. Um, may we all merit the opportunity to, to approach God uh, in, this, in this way. Thank you.